Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The concept of what is right and what is just, that's what trial lawyers are trying to do. If we can't change the world, at least I can change this client's world into something that's right and just. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, sorry about that. We lost uh, we lost Raz for a second, though, so I wasn't sure when to start talking. But uh, I know we're, I, we're, I thought he had switched. I thought he had switched <laughs> to one of those silent count-ins like they do on TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. not the same on Zoom. <laughs> Even though you can't see me. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, well, Vaughn, uh, uh, why, why don't we get a, a, a Nasha update uh, and hear how your new puppy is doing? Yeah, Nasha update one week, one week in. Um, I'm really I'm still really tired. Um, and this this episode that we're going to record today, is going to be even more educational than usual because I barely had time to prepare for it. <laughs> right, <laughs> so exactly. I'm so really going to be educated. <laughs> so you're going to have a lot of questions like, what's this case all about? I'm going to be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but no, it's going good. But as I was telling you and our special guest before we started recording, um, I, I just, uh, I don't know how, how parents of human children do it. I, sh- I should be, have been apologizing to you all and thanking you all every day of your lives. You are well, all superheroes. <laughs> you can, you can, you can start now, Vaughn. I mean, okay. I mean, it will be I okay. <laughs> Derek, Steve, you guys are the best. You've done something so hard. Um, you're champions and superheroes. And we're still doing it. It's, it's that's, that's right. That's right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, so well, let me go ahead and, and introduce our guests. Although at this point in the show, uh, our guest needs no introduction because now, now there is there is no doubt that that Derek Alexander Pope is the reigning king of guests on our show. He's been on more times than anybody else. I and I'm not even sure. I think we're at number six or seven. I, we Derek has been on a lot. So uh, Derek, we are so uh, so grateful to have you on here to do another show about civil rights cases and in history and uh, always such a uh, wealth of knowledge. Uh, thank you for coming on Derek. You guys are like Regis and Kathleen. and I'm feeling a bit like Gelman. I've been on so <laughs> right. much. Now, so I, <laughs> right, right. I, really, I really do appreciate it. So glad to be here. Listen, uh, I well, just, I'm just glad that we can keep those royalties checks coming, you know, the, right. the, those big podcast dollars. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. I, you know, to, to show to let everyone, let everyone know exactly how, extensive those checks are i will all whenever they come in i go up to the walgreens and get myself a payday candy bar just to go say, hey, <laughs> yeah, that's right right one, one big payday deserves another <laughs> yeah that's right that's right i like that <laughs> <laughs> oh well let me let me just remind everybody i'm sure we don't need to remind everybody at this point but uh first of all uh derek alexander pope is the president and founding director of the arc of justice institute and uh and the, the host of the hidden Legal Figures podcast, uh, which is just a fantastic podcast about uh, really the the history of civil rights, the history of uh, of, of the law and African Americans in the law, and um, and just a fantastic podcast. Uh, you can look up uh, Derek at hiddenlegalfigures.com. Um, also, uh, I mean, Derek has had a long, illustrious career. He uh, 
I, I don't, you may still be, but at least at one point you're an adjunct professor at Georgia State University College of Law uh, and, um, and also the chief of staff for the office of the chairman of the Fulton, uh, Fulton County Board of Commissioners and um, among many other things. Exactly right. Not teaching at Georgia State College of Law anymore, but I've gone over to begin teaching over at the Stetson School of Business, uh, the legal environment of business over at Mercer University in Atlanta campus. So really enjoying the opportunity to introduce the environment of law to the next generation of MBAs and business titans. So that's it. I'm, I'm really enjoying that. You know, and uh, and now I feel bad because I'm almost certain you mentioned that on our last podcast, uh, and and we knew that already. But um, so that that is fantastic. <laughs> well, that's all right. No, no problem. No problem. <laughs> Derek, are the um are the classes in person or are they on Zoom? They were in person last uh, last semester, and they're going to continue to be in person. And so there's you know we're taking full um, precautions. Yeah, yeah. Adhering to the in-person protocol, but there's nothing. There's nothing like the in-person aspect. Exchange. Totally, yeah. uh, <laughs> you can't really get the become fully immersed as you on Zoom as you can in, in person. And so I, I the, the, it, it's, it's 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 totally enjoyable. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, well, uh, well, Derek, like I said, I mean, it's always great to have you on here and we have another, uh, not only terrific case to talk about, but, uh, just a moment in history that is, uh, 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 you know, tremendously sad, a terrible tragedy. Um, but, uh, you know, something that is, um, just, you know, an extremely important historical moment. Um, but the, um, the case that we're talking about today is the city of Memphis versus Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, et al. There was a number of other defendants, uh, in the case, but, uh, but, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was the, uh, I guess, lead defendant. Uh, it was a, 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 an injunction had been filed. A temporary restraining order had been filed by the city of Memphis uh, against um, Martin Luther King, as well as several other out-of-state civil rights lawyers uh, in the um, in the United States District Court of Western Tennessee uh, back in uh, April of 1968 to keep them from uh, having a a uh, protest march in support of the sanitation workers there in the city of Memphis um, and. Uh, Without, we'll we'll talk about this more as we go through it, but um, it was uh, basically because of this this temporary restraining order and the injunction hearing that Dr. King was in Memphis uh, on April fourth, uh, nineteen sixty eight, which was the um, uh, the day that he was shot and killed at the Lorraine Hotel. Um, so uh, just. Uh, obviously a terrible tragedy and, and an extremely important case, but, um, but a, a, a fascinating uh, time in both history and in, um, and in legal history. Indeed. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the tragic, very well-known tragedy of April 4th of Dr. King's assassination is something that history has made a great point of emphasis about. But the reason that he was in Memphis 
as a almost a slight footnote, as you talked about being there to come to the aid of striking sanitation workers. But the legal work that was being done at that particular moment, pretty much like the legal work that was being done throughout the civil rights movement, doesn't even sometimes doesn't even rate a footnote. It is as if that was not even a part of what was taking place. But that legal matter that you referenced, City of Memphis versus King and some and others was a pivotal part of what was taking place over that two days. And so much legal work and legal activity went into the two days that you would imagine that this, this was really the equivalent of a six month trial, but it was just a two day period where a, 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 a wide array of legal activities took place. Right. And, and you know, one thing I, I found was fascinating, but like the legal team that represented Dr. King and the others, uh, you know, met with him on April 3rd at the Lorraine Hotel in his, uh, in his uh, uh, hotel room, um, you know, to, to prepare for uh, the hearing the next day, which was going to be to try and dissolve the injunction that had been put in place uh, by Judge Brown. Um, uh, again, this is the Western District of Tennessee. And just as part of the legal maneuvering, uh, the city of Memphis had intentionally only filed uh, the injunction against out-of-state um, uh, civil rights activists so that they could put the case in federal court as opposed to uh, a local state court. Um, and then, uh, and then a, uh, another interesting thing is uh, uh, Andrew Young, uh, obviously another famous civil rights leader, mayor of Atlanta and, and um, ambassador, uh, was filling Dr. King in on the day's events at the hearing um, right before they were about to go to dinner. Uh, and then it was right after uh, uh, he finished filling Dr. King in that he stepped out onto the balcony and Dr. King was uh, was was shot on his way to dinner. Exactly. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the lawyers meeting with Dr. King and his representatives in the hotel room at the Lorraine. Uh, we've we've all seen the clip of Dr. King giving his famous mountaintop speech at the Masonic Temple. And everyone's always talked told, told us and about how exhausted and how tired and how worn out Dr. King was. But no one's ever told us the the activity that really wore him out. It was the five and a half hour meeting on the afternoon of April 3rd at the hotel room that really just made him so exhausted because that was not something that he had anticipated was going to happen. Uh, Lucius Birch, who's the senior partner of the law firm that was principally handling the representation of Dr. King, insisted on meeting with Dr. King. Uh, they got a call, that firm got a call um, one of the young associates there, about gentleman by the name of W.J. Michael, Mike Cody, got a phone call from one of his colleagues at the ACLU to represent Dr. King. And Mr. Cody recalls that when he got the when he got the call from hit from Charles Morgan, his 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 colleague at the ACLU, he said to himself, well, I'm just a young lawyer. I really don't know that much about what's going on right now, but I do know someone just across the hall who has some weight, who has some impetus here. And so he went to tell Mr. 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 Birch about the call. And Mr. Birch insisted on meeting with Dr. King at that, that moment to determine exactly how serious it was that they have representation and have some kind of presence in the court from that standpoint. And so that's how that meeting came about. 
at the at the insistence of Mr. Birch that he wanted to meet with Dr. King to get a, to have a, have an understanding of the significance and importance of re representing them in, in in court. And so that nearly four and a half hour meeting is what made Dr. King so exhausted. Six lawyers, uh, Dr. King and three of his representatives sitting knee to knee across from each other in, in a little small twin uh, uh, hotel room with two twin beds. Uh, in in April of 1968. Yeah, and, and you know, and that sounds so familiar to getting ready for trial. Uh, you know, and so many times meeting with their clients. Uh, you know, you, you know, in their hotel room or or somewhere, um, you know, close by. Um, you know, and um, you know what I I found was interesting, Derek, and and I we talked about this a little bit off the air. But uh, so the firm that represented Dr. King and the others in this injunction is, was uh, Birch, Porter and Johnson. And you mentioned Lucius Birch was the uh, sort of lead trial lawyer there. And he was the one in charge. Uh, the two of the associates were a man named Charles Newman and then another named W.J. Michael Cody. I just happened to go on their website to see. I was like, well, you know, is this firm still around? And sure enough, Mike Cody is still a practicing lawyer. Uh, there at, at Birch, uh, Porter and Johnson, you can look them up and you can go to bpjlaw.com and, and you can look up, uh, Mike Cody and he, he's, uh, he's, he's got a few years under his belt now, but, uh, but still, uh, still actively practicing law. Yes, he is. And, and Mr. Cody is, is, is a national treasure if there ever was one. And for the people who have seen the movie, the firm, uh, when I stepped inside, uh, Mr. Cody's office in the law firm of Birch Porter and Johnson. When I went there to meet with him about a year or so, year and a half ago, I I was reminded of the firm. Well, talking talking with Mr. Cody later on, uh, there were some people who wanted to use the interior of their law firm as the background, the set for the movie The Firm. But Mr. Johnson, um, excuse me, uh, Mr. Mr. Birch rejected that because he did not want the staff and the associates to spend their day printing for cameras and things like that. <laughs> <Right. laughs> but what the what the filmmakers did was that they took pictures of the firm. They remembered it. And so when you see the firm, when the listeners go back and look at the the, the, the motion picture, the firm, what you see in there is an actual is, is nearly a, a representation of what Birch Porter and Johnson looks like on the inside. That's pretty cool. That, that, that's a very cool story. Um, well, uh, well, uh, Derek, let's give a little bit of background about this case um, in, in, in where they got to um, to the point that the city filed a, an injunction against them. So this all uh, stemmed from the uh, sanitation workers at, for the city of Memphis. About thirteen hundred African-Americans had gone on strike um, because of the conditions. And it really all started back on February 1st of 1968. Uh, there was a terrible storm and two workers, um, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, uh, had uh, sort of taken refuge in the back of their garbage truck uh, in order to um, avoid the storm. And, um, and while they were in the back of the garbage truck, the compactor uh, basically um, uh, initiated or clicked into gear and, uh, they were crushed to death and, uh, there was no benefits. There is no pay. There was no nothing for their families. 
Um, and then so that sort of uh, started, you know, uh, a lot of people talking about the conditions that uh, that they were working under there and the treatment of especially uh, the African-American workers and um, and how they you know weren't given, you know, the, the same uh, benefits as, as the uh, white workers. And um, and so eventually that led to a strike, um, a you know, by the by the workers. And then that led to a, I think it was Reverend uh, Lawson, who was a James Lawson, who was a reverend in Memphis, who's, who basically started a, a sort of peaceful protest march uh, that was scheduled for March 28th. Dr. King came in for that. And then during that march, uh, a few of the people that were part of the march, uh, I, I guess, uh, were maybe you know there for not good reasons and started to uh, smash some of the storefronts. Uh, cause, uh, you know, some problems. And then it ended up being about, I think, 60 people were injured and one person was killed. One young man was killed. Um, and so because of that, then the uh, mayor of the city of Memphis brought in the um, uh, National Guard, um, declared martial law. And, uh, and you know, when they were going to try and do another march, basically the city of Memphis at that point files uh, a a temporary restraining or a motion for injunction to keep them from marching. Um, and that was issued on April the 3rd, 1968. And then there was going to be a hearing on April the 4th, 1968, uh, in front of judge Brown, who interestingly enough, judge Brown had been a former partner at Birch Porter and Johnson, um, before becoming a federal judge. And, um, and so, uh, that, uh, led to, um, the hearing that we're going to talk about, uh, we, you know, basically that's the the background um, leading up to that. That's it. That's that wide angle lens. And the death of Mr. Walker and Echo Cole was that final straw that that that's that, the straw that broke the camel's back. The sanitation workers in Memphis had already begun to start to coalesce themselves in the possibility of a strike or have some kind of labor dispute with the city. Uh, there were there was a the, the big problem was around predictably and understandably wages when when it would rain or there was inclement weather in Memphis at that particular moment. And there was no, no ability of the sanitation workers to actually perform their jobs. They couldn't, unlike that we experience right now, we have these grand, grand bins that just sit at the curb at the sidewalk and the truck comes along and they put the trash in there at that in the, in the, in the big, in the big can in the truck. At that particular moment, the workers had to actually go in the backyards of people, lift the trash out of the cans, pour it into, put it into a receptacle and haul it back to the truck on their, on their shoulders. They did this house after house facility, business after business. And on those days that the weather was, was bad, the black workers would not receive pay. But supervisors and white workers were were getting paid, even if they did not perform a, a task at that particular moment. Well, that was the beginning of the concerns around the disparities with respect to the labor from that regard. While some of the talks were taking place between uh, black official, black workers and city officials on a break for lunch one day, Mr. Mr. Cole and Mr. Walker were sitting, as you mentioned, Steve, in the back of the, the garbage truck and to get out of the rain. 
Um, the rain had started in, 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 during the course of their work day. And to get out of the rain, they took their lunch inside, sat the, inside the back of the, the garbage can. Now, whenever I've heard that story, I've always thought it, I, I, I've, I've always had to pause right there. There's something so sad and odd and horrifying about two human beings eating their lunch on the back of a garbage truck. Mm -hmm. that, that just boggles the mind that there's no place to go into and sit other than just the back of a garbage truck. Well, someone, some worker was sitting in the front of the truck doing the same thing. This worker is eating his lunch and unknown to him, accidentally, the two are sitting back there and hits a particular switch to close it. And the two, Mr. Walker and Mr. Cole, get caught back there and, and, and die. And as you mentioned, Steve, there were no benefits for them. And so this hastened and just lit the fuse for the strike. And so they began to they began to get a walkout and they really weren't getting anywhere. And as you mentioned, Reverend Jim Lawson, who was a contemporary of Dr. King, uh, Pitt called him and said, look, we're not getting anywhere. We need you to come here from this particular standpoint. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Well, also at that time, what Dr. King's concentration was on was his poor people's campaign, where they were going to be taking the issue of poverty and economic want to the nation's capital to put it on full display. 
And so he had begun to go from city to city and state to state to recruit people to go up to Washington. And they were going to have this massive demonstration in Washington. People were going to be living in tents so that that so that the issue of poverty could be front and center in the nation's capital. This is what he was working on. This is what he had the staff working on at this particular moment. But all of a sudden he gets a call from Reverend Lawson to go to go to Memphis and work on that. And Andy Young and others did not want him to go. He has famously been reported to have said, if I can't go to the aid of striking sanitation workers in Memphis, we have no chance of succeeding to discuss the poor across the nation. So he goes and the first march is not one that they plan. It's not one that they have any planning and organizing efforts around. It's almost something that's a particular haphazard. And then yes, violence does ensue. We learned that later from reading the transcript of the case of city of Memphis versus King that about 46 people, excuse me, 64 people injured, nine police officers injured, 225 people arrested and about $400,000 in property damage took what took place on that particular moment. And there were also these threats and reports of violence to not only just in the marches, but to the to Dr. King's life life itself, police received reports that Dr. King would not make it out of Memphis alive if this march took place, and so the police were appropriately and understandably concerned and went to the city and asked for a temper asked for an injunction to keep Dr. King from coming into the city along with others. Uh, who were named in the lawsuit, Reverend James Bevel, who's out of Mississippi, Bernard Lee in Atlanta, Reverend James Arm Orange out of Birmingham, Reverend Abernathy and Jose Williams, and of course, Dr. King. These are the named non-resident defendants in this, in this case. And the city wanted to keep them from having the march out of a concern for safety for as what would, what may happen in in this march as a result of the violence that had taken place on Thursday, March 28th, one week before his assassination. They had planned to have a march. Uh, they were thinking to have a march uh, as early as the following Monday, the following Monday, which would have been March 1st. Uh, but because of the injunction, they had to have that hearing. Uh, and, and so that was the major concern. That's the backdrop of what's happening at that particular moment. We've got six lawyers on behalf of Dr. King, uh, Lucius Birch, as we've mentioned, Mike Cody, as we've mentioned, Charles Newman. We have a young, young, young man by the name of David Kaywood. And from one of the only integrated law firms in the city of Memphis at that time, the Sugarman firm, we have a gentleman by the name of Walter Bailey and Louis Lucas. And so these six men, they're representing Dr. King. They're representing the Dr. King through the ACLU. This is how the representation came. Um, and it, one of the more interesting things when you meant you referenced earlier, doc, uh, one of the photos of Mr. Cody and Mr. Birch entering to the courthouse. 
uh, I've seen the telegram that came from the ACLU requesting that Dr. King, that, that Mr. Birch represent him. And it was so interesting to just read a telegram. <laughs> That's that was the <clears throat> method of communication of that particular right. moment. And so we've got these six lawyers here. And the hearing on the first day, as you mentioned, April 3rd, begins at around 1145 in the morning where the temporary restraining order is is issued. And we go to April 4th with the hearing beginning at 930. And we have sort of a joint hearing here. Uh, Mr. Lucas, Lewis, Lewis Lucas, as I mentioned earlier, at the first hearing on April 3rd, he requested uh, from and obtained from the judge, the ability to file a motion to dissolve the temporary restraining order. And that's what they heard on. That was what they were hearing on the morning and throughout the day of April 4th, that motion to dissolve the temporary restraining order. And the two witnesses that were being taking the stand on behalf of Dr. King were Reverend James Lawson, who was a member a, was in Memphis at that particular moment, and Andrew Young. Uh, the, there was an, a third witness I saw mentioned, uh, a gentleman named John Spence from the uh, the Civil Rights Commission. Yes. Okay. Um, and I and I remember thinking that there there was some mention in there, and I think it was Reverend Lawson who ended up testifying about it. That um, uh, when they talk about the danger to uh, Dr. King, um, you know, they sort of mention, well, that's pretty much true wherever he goes. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, he, it's not unusual for him to get threats on his life, uh, you know, pretty much uh, everywhere. So, you know, as far as them, as far as the city mentioning, that is one of the reasons why not to have a march there. They kind of said, you know, their kind of response was, well, you know, Dr. King, you know, he's such a well-known figure and, and no matter where he goes, he gets, you know, people who are threatening to uh, to uh, do harm to him. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it, it it's amazing, you know, looking back, uh, you know, to that, you know, he did so much and then under, you know, just a tremendous amount of stress of, you know, not only knowing that, you know, what you were doing was just so important and, and, um, and leading so many people, but just, uh, you know, recognizing that, uh, you know, his life was in danger every, you know, pretty much every day. Pretty much every day, almost from the beginning of his public ministry, his public work, he felt that, that, that the pain and the pangs of death imminent all around him. It, it, it's also interesting, Steve, to note the arc of the, Dr. King's utilization of lawyers in connection with his public work and how his sentiments and thoughts changed from the very beginning of his work, which was in uh, with the Montgomery bus boycott on to this case that we're talking about now. One of the interesting reasons that Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Birch wanted to meet with Dr. King is because he had some at some point he had publicly made a particular statement that even if the federal court issues an injunction, we're going to march anyway. That was yeah. somewhat of a particular departure of his both public and private thinking. It was always a willingness to cooperate with the courts, um, no matter what was being no matter what was said at that particular moment by a court. Um, but it, this was an instance where he was thinking that despite 
what the courts may issue, we're going to proceed. He had reached this point in his personal life where, as you referenced, the threat of death was always around him. There was a lot changing that he where he saw and he started to move towards talking about the the twin evils of racism, militarism and poverty, this enormous expenditure of, of, of public resources on the Vietnam War, while just economic havoc was being wreaked, wreaked in the lives of black people and poor people and the growing call from those within his organization and without of how this nonviolence is just not working anymore. It's not really going to change anything. And so what we're going to have to have is a more direct action. We're going to have to be more assertive and more aggressive. And if that includes some of these organizations, other leaders were thinking, if that includes a resort to violence, so be it. And so he was torn within and from without his organization in these particular aspects, not, not seeming to be able to move the needle as he wanted to or should have been as far as the federal government was concerned, clearly having to contend with the contentious nature of state and local authorities, and now having this backlash within his own group that is now taking a direct challenge to the philosophy of nonviolence as the appropriate means to resolve these particular issues. And so because of all of that, this is when this is how he gets to the point where he's making the statement that we're going to do it anyway. We're going to march anyway. And that meant a, that was, as I mentioned earlier, that is a radical departure of how he had functioned before, because it was the federal courts that had that had been giving the impetus to the continued mobility, the continued progress of the civil rights movement at that particular moment, to flout with impunity what a federal court might issue when it had been the historic ally and consistent ally uh, that seemed to everyone to be something that was so out of character and would place the movement in a whole, the poor people's campaign on a smaller level in a, in a, in a precarious position. And so that was where he was at that particular moment. And as we move towards the hearing on April 4th, as you mentioned, when Andy says, well, he's always receiving threats. And so that's not something that we actually take into consideration when we're talking about planning a march, having a demonstration. And there's some excellent, excellent um, information that comes from Reverend Lawson and Andrew Young. We've got the chief of police, assistant chief of police and the director of the division of fire and police who have offered their testimony earlier in the first part of the morning of April 4th, that when, it, when the hearing began at 9.30, and they have set the stage for their concern about violence into the city, as we've talked about, that's to Dr. King. But by the time that Reverend Lawson and, 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 and Ambassador Young take the stand at about 1 o'clock, 1.05 that afternoon, they quickly and easily set that information aside. Reverend Lawson begins his testimony by talking about what it really means to have 
a demonstration, what that what that actually means. And, and, and I'll quote from the from his testimony. He says that people have to get a visible picture of the injustice or of truth before they are willing to commit themselves to being by or changing it. He's explaining through his through his testimony at that particular moment that this demonstration is serving much larger purpose. And even if we know that, as you're pointing out, that there's that might be threats to Dr. King's life, which we live with on a daily basis, the purpose is much larger than one individual. The purpose is much larger than even come even having our presence here at this particular moment. As he points out, if you don't see it, if you don't witness it, it's very difficult for you to say that I'm going to, to use his words, live by changing it. I can agree that it's wrong that a person has to sit in the back of a garbage can to have lunch. I can agree that it may be wrong that one group of people are, aren't paid, but another, another group is and the same conditions are taking place. But if it's not front and center, if it's not staring you in the face on a daily basis, then it's hard for you to be able to say that I'm going to rearrange my living to change this. And so that's where he says that that's what that's, that's the importance of the demonstrations. And he also goes on to talk about that the demonstrations are a it's what what do you call it? The nonviolent soul force. It's the weaponry of the spirit. That's how the spirit uses. That's the, that's the grand tool that the spirit uses to change things. Uh, as he points out, if a man is, a, he has the courage of his convictions and he talks with his neighbors. It's that soul force that gets the neighbor to see things a certain way. Without yeah, let, let me just interject sure. here because I, I, I noticed this from one of the exhibits and it was a it was basically, you know, a uh, request for people to join the first march and uh, the first protest march in March. And I thought the uh, language that they use and I, I was just bringing it up because you were just mentioning the soul force and it said and it, it, it requests the the marchers to use the soul force, which is peaceful, loving, courageous, yet militant, um, you know, when they were coming out. So uh, I, I like that, you know, when you mentioned the, the soul force, that that was even in their exhibits that they that they had. And that's what they were uh, asking the, the marchers to do. Exactly. Exactly. Which is in stark contrast to those individuals who had taken part in the march on the Thursday prior. Uh, they had the wooden sticks and that were attached to the placards and things of that nature. Anything that, that could be formed into some, used as some kind of physical weapon. Uh, this starts contrast to, as you just read, these, this is this is a spiritual weapon. This that's what this soul force is in that regard. And he, he also went on to tell to say that demonstrations are a vehicle for for the communication for the poor and the less affluent. Mr. Birch made the contrast between the Dot King and, and, and the groups that he was representing and, and, and others and say, look, would you agree that most black people are poor? And Mr. And, and Reverend Lawson says, yes, and they don't have any access to 
the newspapers, the 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 the, the newspapers that we, that were that were prevalent in Memphis at that particular moment. No, and they didn't have access to things like that that kind of access that the Chamber of Commerce would have. And Reverend Lawson answered, no, we do not. And so the demonstration becomes an alternative. It becomes a substitute. It becomes the vehicle for communication for people who are less affluent. And so it is an important aspect that needs to be protected. That was very interesting because later, when, when Andrew, Andrew Young takes the stand, he specifically and pointedly begins his testimony by talking about the First Amendment and the right of citizens to petition the government for redress of grievances. And so what Reverend Lawson's testimony has brought into the record, the idea that the demonstration is a vehicle of communication, communication, of course, being another word for speech, which is a First Amendment protection. And then Reverend Young says that this is part, the demonstration is really an expression of a constitutional right, the right to petition the government for redress of grievance. And his testimony is also riveting. It's, it's, it's why Charles Newman in a program in 2018 said about, said, said the following, he said, we've had, which we had strong law, we had strong facts, we had a legendary client, eloquent witnesses, and a fine judge. And he says, I don't think the outcome was ever in doubt. Mr. Lawson's testimony that I talked mentioned earlier and, and, and Andrew Young's testimony, he says he had never seen such powerful and eloquent testimony that, that left such a memorable impact on him. When, when Andrew Young talked about the First Amendment aspect, he went on to explain in more, in greater detail and, and significance and import what these what this was doing. And, and here's something he said, Yvonne, in the testimony. He said, the act of marching gives one a public opportunity to disassociate himself from an evil that is present in society while he is also making claims to that society for redress of those grievances. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now 
than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. Can you imagine if you had a witness on the stand, a breach of contract case who could, who could paint a picture like that to the judge? You'd just go, goodness, just go ahead and, and enter verdict on our, fa- on our behalf at this particular moment. To be able to say that this demonstration is serving a twofold purpose, giving anyone who participates the opportunity to stand up in public, communicate to his or her fellow citizens out front, up front, in public, saying this, there is an evil in our society. There is a blight here. There is a there is something that is wrong. And I am publicly disassociating myself from it. I love the word disassociating in his testimony, not just speaking out against it, not just disagreeing with it. But I am removing myself from cooperation and partnership with it. I am not complicit with that. We are disassociating ourselves with with that blight on our society, but at the same time, being able to recognize that our society is still has virtue. And so I'm appealing to that aspect of our, of our society that has virtue to redress this particular grievance. That is a tremendous testimony to say, this is why this March needs to take place. And so let's make certain that we that we do dissolve this temporary restraining order, because otherwise this will not come to the attention of the public because it won't find its way into the newspapers because of the lack of the access. It will not find itself into those meetings behind closed doors because there are no members of we have no members in the chambers of commerce. And so no one will ever get the opportunity to disassociate themselves from it. And the society as a large will not get the opportunity to correct it. It's it's. um It's interesting, too. I mean, it makes me think a lot about, you know, how, uh, you know, how you frame the issues or how you frame a case now, you know, just any sort of civil case in that that quote. um, 
and the way it's talking about marching, you know, it almost, you know, it frames the issue in a, in a way where you're thinking about, well, this, even if you don't understand or what it's not, it's not a march you're going to participate in the idea that it's going to make, it's going to call attention to something that, you know, you're still invested enough in this, in the society that you want it to be better, that you want it to change, that you want to make things better. Is it, is a well, that's true. It's also a great way to frame the issue because then it's like, what are you saying if you're, you know, against that you're making the picture a lot bigger than just the, 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 um, you know, the sort of the, the micro issue, but just sort of saying, Hey, this is about making society better. Do you, you know, for you to be, it's framing the issue in a way where it's like, if you're going to oppose it, you're basically saying you don't want us to be better. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, and your phrase framing the issue, clearly that's something that we do as lawyers all the time. Uh, one of the hidden treasures, one of the gifts that we have is the ability to use language. Um, they, the, 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 as you, as you call it, Yvonne, framing the issue. I think it was Learned Hand who said, I really don't care who writes the opinion as long as I can draft, frame the issue. If I can tell you what the issue is, I care less who writes the, who writes the opinion <laughs> of this particular moment. It's, 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 our, it's one of our first gifts in how to deploy language here. And in the testimony of these witnesses, we see that language being used. And when you talked about, you know, that that aspect of society, uh, Yvonne, that you, you, you didn't use the word, but you, you expressed a sentiment around hope, wanting things to change. And because I can use because th- this language that has been used, it it brings into mind the concept of hope. It, 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 it brings that to to the to the forefront. That's also something that Andrew Young talked about in his testimony. That was another aspect of what the demonstrations did to any individual who has grown accustomed to or been familiar has the familiarity with being marginalized, oppressed on the outer edges of walled off from the the pleasures of the larger society, the benefits and the, from the mainstream society, there's, there's a lot of built up hostility, tension, frustration, envy, regret, remorse, sadness, disdain, and that moves all the way to anger. And, and, and Andrew Young says there has to come a point where there has to be an outlet for that. And if there is no outlet for it, it can cause, uh, it can cause destructive inclinations, but marches offer some particular great degree of hope. Here is where some of that can be channeled and where and when it's channeled there and when you can see progress being made, whether that progress is small, whether that progress is it comes at a particular time beyond your own desired thinking. If you nonetheless can see it and then you participate in it, that has that outlet for the, the demonstrations and marches are an outlet for that pent up frustration that be, that turns itself into hope and that hope turns itself into greater activity. And that activity is what produces the change from, in that regard. So uh, you, I don't I would love to be able to have found some recordings for that test for the for the witness preparation session they had back in that hotel. 
but I certainly would have that that would had to be probably one of the best uh, witness preparation meetings that has ever taken place in the history of trials. Uh, so to just if, if as you read through the testimony of these two witnesses. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> at the uh, at, at the end of the hearing, it seems like uh, that essentially the two sides were brought together in, in a sort of compromise in that uh, the uh, march would go forward with some uh, uh, restrictions that the um, that the defendants, the, the Dr. King and others had agreed to. Um, and uh, the judge actually speaks about it <clears throat> uh, in an interview later on that. Um, you know, that he, you know, thought that the two sides had come together pretty well. He, he had restated it and he was expecting to get an order the next day in order to allow them to, um, you know, go forward with the march. And then it was on his way home that he heard on the uh, radio uh, that Dr. King had been murdered. And uh, and then, of course, uh, everything changed at that point. Everything changed. They they conclude the hearing around five o'clock. Uh, Judge Brown calls all the lawyers back into his chambers and lets them know what you just mentioned, Steve. Uh, here, the I'm going to lift the injunction. The march is going to be allowed to proceed under the under certain stipulations, not the least of which was that you know marchers could only walk four abreast, meaning four four marchers side by side. Uh, the police officers had to they had to maintain constant communication with the police officers. Uh, the marshals were going to walk along in certain armbands to be easily identifiable, both to uh, the to, to anyone who who was out there and other other um, guidelines. And he asked, as judges often do, asked the parties to prepare an order that he was going to sign the very next morning, which would have been Friday morning, April 5th. And at that particular moment, um, Mr. Mr. Cody is still, is of course, one of those lawyers. And he goes back to the Lorraine Motel with, uh, with, one of Dr., with one of Dr. King's personal lawyers to drive him back over to the hotel. And they begin to proceed to explain to Dr. King that the judge was going to lift the injunction. Mr. Cody leaves. This is about 5.55, 5.55, He leaves on his way home. And of course, by that time, Judge Brown has already left the courthouse and he's on his way home. At about 6.01 then, a shot rang out from across the street. Uh, two shots and one fatally wounding Dr. King in the neck. And about five, 10 minutes later, but that's when Judge Brown on his car radio and Mr. Cody on his car radio, both on their way home here that Dr. King had had been killed. But the, that's not but the legal work didn't stop. Right. Uh, because the the way they went on to the courthouse the next morning, Judge Brown signed the order. The march did did take place uh, that following Monday or Tuesday, if memory serves. Mrs. King came back to yep. lead the march, uh, and uh, it was it it went off peacefully. And the interesting the, the the thing about it is that the work that Dr. King committed his life to was a work that he stepped into. This work predated his existence and it continued after him and before him, with him and after him. The law has played an incredible part and been an incredible partner in this work. 
And as we talk about these cases, as we talk about these events, it continues to be a magnificent example of what lawyers have done, what lawyers can do. And lately, I've been toying with the thought process at the risk of sounding of sounding arrogant, exactly what lawyers should be doing at this particular moment as we are beginning to see the resurgence of the very kinds of issues that were swirling around the nation at the time of Dr. King's death that were prevalent in Memphis and that are bringing themselves back to the forefront in, in our contemporary lives. You know, the, uh, the uh, you know, obviously this has a, 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 a tragic ending for Dr. King. Uh, ultimately, you know, as you said, on April the 8th, the, um, uh, the march does go forward. Uh, and, and Dr. King's wife, Coretta Scott King, was there for that. And it went forward peacefully. And then ultimately, uh, there are changes made for the sanitation workers. And uh, there are negotiations. And it's successful in getting better conditions for uh, the workers and the uh, I think the union that was formed uh, is still in place today for the sanitation workers. Um, you know, so uh, it, it's uh, it, it's got that uh, uh, tragic part to it for Dr. King, you know, but I guess in one way, the the work that was being done was successful in, in changing the lives of, of many, many uh, workers and sanitation workers. Exactly. Um, you know, one of the things that that um, and I, th I think we'll uh, we'll go out on this, but the um, one of the things that I've always found so interesting and it's just sort of haunting to me is that, you know, Dr. King, you, you spoke about it um, briefly at the beginning. But Dr. King on the night before gives the his speech, his famous speech called I've been to the mountaintop uh, speech and, and basically where he talks about that he may not get to the promised land. Uh, with the uh, others, but that he's been to the mountaintop and he's seen it. And um, it's uh, it's sort of, uh, I mean, not only is it just an extremely powerful speech, uh, but it's haunting in that, uh, you know, he basically talks about the fact that, that uh, you know, he, while he, like anybody else, would like to live a long life, uh, that may not be in the cards for him. And, um, and that, that he knows them as a, that they as a people will get to the promised land, but he, he may not make it there with them. Um, and, uh, it's just a, an extremely powerful speech. And, and as you said, there's some comments there that he, when he came in, he seemed exhausted. Um, and it's because he had been in this long meeting with his lawyers. Uh, but I read one of the, one of the people that were there for the speech talked about how Dr. King basically came in, sat down for a few seconds, sort of caught his breath and then walked to the podium and started speaking, no notes or anything and just gave this uh, tremendously powerful speech. Didn't want to be there that night. Um, the rally was taking place and uh, history records that Ralph David Abernathy called him and said, you need to come over here. And Dr. King responds, no, Ralph, it's fine. You speak. It'll be OK. We'll talk to the people Later on on the weekend after this injunction is lifted, we'll talk more about the march that's coming up on Monday. No, you need to get here, Martin, because they want to hear from you. So he takes himself there. And we also we, we also know from history, from his contemporaries and his his staff that Dr. King had 
was always dealing with the issue of his own death and as a way to become comfortable with it, if you can do that, yeah, <laughs> as a way to make yourself less frightened of it, he would often have others preach his eulogy as a as as part of their inner circle kind of exercise before beginning a staff meeting. Uh, certainly, that's one of the more intriguing um, staff retreat um, right. break. Uh, uh, what do you call those things? Uh, breaking like the ice. Team builder. Right. Yeah, team yeah, ice exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a very intriguing one. I, I always felt that having someone stand behind you and you just fall and see if they'll catch you. I thought that was a little dangerous, but hey, right. hey, let's do an icebreaker. Let's preach each other's eulogy. Um, <laughs> maybe on the next time that we get together for the Great Trials podcast, Yvonne, that's how we'll start our conversation. That's right. <laughs> okay. So, he, but but he would do that, and it, it, it was and it was his way of not only just getting them comfortable with the fact that at any given moment something could happen. It was was getting himself ready, readying himself for it. And so by the time that he gets there, the night, the night of April 4th at the Masonic Temple, uh, he gets off the plane coming to Memphis the day before, and they, everyone has to deplane because there was a bomb threat there. And so on my way to Memphis, I'm, I have to stop because and get off the plane because someone has threatened the existence of my life at this particular moment. He talks that longevity has its place. Like anybody else, he'd like to live a long life, but that doesn't matter to him anymore. Um, he just wants to do God's will. You, you, you get the sense most people have said, OK, he must have known something was coming. I've never thought that he knew something was coming the next day. I get the sense that he knew that it was the time was there, that it wasn't going to be a long, you know, long, a long time from this moment. He, he, I, he and he had just gotten to the point that I'm, I'm fine with this now, that it's all right. It's going to happen. And when it does, I have met that time period with the following. I have left a committed life behind. I've done God's will. I've actually gone and I have literally seen what I have been working for. I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to experience it with you. I'm not going to participate in it with you. We're not going to share in that exchange, but I've seen it. We'll get there. And I'm okay with that from that standpoint. That is an amazing personal capability. That's an that's capability is not the right word. I just got the right word. Speaking of language, Yvonne, that is an amazing personal asset to be able to own and fully possess the fact that this is going to end. We get to a point where this this is there's a finality to it and to be able to embrace that secure in the understanding that the time that I have spent here, I have achieved something far greater than my presence here. And I have, I'm, I have, I'm comfortable with that finality. James Baldwin puts it best when he says that we have to earn that rest. 
You don't have, mm. you don't just, you don't just cease to be. You are, we're, we're toiling and we're laboring for, for the particular standpoint of earning that particular rest. And just, you just have to get, you listen to Dr. King at that moment and you just realize that he, he had, he had, he had reached the point where he's, where he knew in his own mind, in his own spirit, that he had earned that rest. And that's what we have to do. We, we, uh, we, those of us who are here now, we, we've got to earn that. We, we, we have to, we have to acquire that asset. It is not enough for us to simply say that we are volunteering at, we have made a contribution to, we have to acquire the asset of being, of having earned that particular comfort and the rest with that finality. And what exactly are we, what, what, how do we earn that at that particular point? What, what, what works, what endeavors do we do to achieve, to achieve that particular, that particular asset? I think once you can get to that point, then it makes the steps and the work that you, the steps you take and the work that you do less intimidating to you. Uh, we, we may not want to speak out against a particular thing because we may lose that promotion. We may not want to be a part of this cause because it will jeopardize a standing in the community. We may not want to say this or do that because it will definitely have a deleterious effect on whether we are offered partnership. Uh, but to come to the understanding that at the moment of finality, partnership is not a saving aspect. It doesn't it doesn't stop it from happening mm. um, at the moment of finality. That award or that thing that we were so concerned about losing or forfeiting or not being given, these things have absolutely no bearing in that relationship. And so if we can acquire the asset of that comfort that he had at that particular moment, then we'll find that the manner in which we conduct our activities to be a little different. And since the manner in which we conduct our activities will be different, I got a sneaky suspicion that the outcome of those activities are going to be that much more different as well. I mean, it's just a uh, just such a great example of how we all need to lead our lives. And, and um, you know, and, and I think that's what a lot of trial lawyers, at least uh, in their heart, want to do is is to make uh, the world a better place, at least in some way or at least for some, you know, it, you know, even if it's just for their client, make the world a little bit better for just their client. Um, you know, do what you can to uh, to uh, help the world move forward and and to make it a, a, a better place. And and um, obviously, Martin Luther King Jr., there's no better example than that. Indeed, I want us to. Lawyers, I mean, when I say us, I mean, lawyers, I I, I really want us. To recognize something about this profession, this calling that we've undertaken. And Yvonne, it makes me nervous when I, as I'm thinking it through right now, it makes me nervous to even think this through. I've been toiling with this for about a decade now. 
And it, but it, it makes me nervous to want to give voice to it, to express it, because I don't think we're comfortable yet in realizing this. We, we hear this phrase, we've tossed around this phrase a long time, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And when we use that phrase, we, we kind of limit the spirit of the law to, well, this was the motivating animus behind why the law came into, into being. This was its real intention. But the truth of the matter is, is that there is a, an, inter, an undeniable interrelatedness between the profession of law and the professions of faith. These things are connected. Um, before deciding to go on to the ministry, Dr. King toyed with the idea of being a lawyer. There was, as a, there's a famous uh, African-American preacher who had gotten accepted into the University of Michigan Law School before he decided to go on to, them, to seminary. Maynard Jackson himself, when he left office the third time, was trying to decide if he was going to go practice or if he was going to go into the ministry. The concept of what is right and what is just, which is what you just alluded to, Steve, that that's what trial lawyers are trying to do. If we can't change the world, at least I can change this client's world into something that's right and just. That concept bespeaks of something that is deeper and older and more enduring than the words we find in the Constitution of the United States of America, the words that are, that are etched in Senate Bill number two, whatever. That concept is, is, is something that's been here from the, time, from the beginning of time and has been with us. And we just don't yet fully appreciate the dimension, the spiritual dimension of that concept. And if lawyers, if I can get lawyers, if I can do one thing to get lawyers to embrace that, to recognize that, then that's when our advocacy is different because we're doing it from a different place. And I use the phrase, Steve, spiritual dimension purposefully, not a religious one, but one that gets to the essence of the animating idea of humanity. The one that, that, that pushes, that, 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 that makes us exactly who we are, irrespective of all of these little artificial classifications that we've come up with. And the language, we have an excellent opportunity and which we don't know that we are, that we're an actual healing profession um, that we can bring to the public conversation something that brings about actual healing from where we are in this particular moment. And we, we, we can do that with better than anybody else because we have the tools we have and that one, that one tool that we have at our disposal unlike anyone else is that language we're able to to be able to use words in a way that can pit people against one another or we can use words in a way that can draw people towards the solutions that benefit each other and so that's what i would like to I, that's what I want to spend some time on trying to figure out how to 
get that get that concept over to the legal profession how to how to make how to, how to make us comfortable with it to activate it to acknowledge it and then and to approach our practice in that aspect that's a daunting task Yvonne. Um, <laughs> it, it's daunting but I, I i i what i really think you're speaking to is is uh the place where a lot of lawyers started out from or wh- why they got into this uh, calling in the first place uh, because it was to do something better to, you know, to make a difference and to, to make a change. And, um, and maybe it's just, you know, reminding, uh, lawyers why they, why they wanted to do this in the first place, why they wanted to get into the law and, uh, and take them back to where they were before, uh, I don't know, they, uh, got jaded in their, uh, in their high rise, uh, office or something like that. But, uh, you know, but no, I, I, those are great words and, uh, and absolutely, um, uh, 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 I think they're absolutely spot on. So um, we really appreciate it. Thank you. D- DAP, think- always bringing the wisdom. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, let that's, me, because uh, I, that's because I just know so little, Yvonne, and I'm just <laughs> constantly trying to find, 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 find some things to just yeah, that I, that right. I can know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I want to just thank uh, Derek Alexander Pope uh, for coming on again and doing such a great job and reminding us of these uh, these extremely important uh, uh, cases, uh, times, uh, these trials and these times in history uh, that have had such a profound effect. And uh, check out uh, Derek's podcast, Hidden Legal Figures, uh, and uh, you can listen to that on all places where you can get podcasts and go uh, check out Derek at hiddenlegalfigures.com. Um, Derek, thank you so much for your uh, for your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? So just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people on that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.